Trees give us stability, but I think they also give us hope for a planet that, in the grip of climate change, can come out of the other side. I'm Ben, and you're listening to The Climate Pivot. For today's episode, I spoke with tree science consultant and writer Harriet Ricks. Harriet's diverse career has taken her from the biochemistry lab to landmine clearance efforts in Iraq and to advocating for Britain's treescape. She's also one of my oldest friends. We spoke while Harriet was travelling to research and write her upcoming book, Earth, Wind and Fire, How Trees Mastered the Elements and Conquered the World. We chatted about her unique journey and career pivot, why climate change must be treated as an urgent problem, and of course, a great deal about trees. Harriet's mix of insights is really quite unique, and I always love talking with people who are as passionate about their subject as she is. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Where are you today? I am in Crete, quite near Heraklion, a little way beyond Crete in the mountains. And I'm here for a research trip, but I'm also trying to do some writing. So I've borrowed a cottage off a very nice lady. And yes, it's very, very beautiful tradition Cretan cottage with lots of wood and stone. Although, of course, now it's raining here and there have been deluges across Greece. And in the UK, it's beautiful. Have there been any wildfires in that area? Crete hasn't been too bad this time, but it's been terrible around Athens. And it's been bad again in Evia, where I went a little while ago to look at the fires from 2021 and how things have been growing back. And that was really terrifying to see, you can imagine. The, you know, just a hillside, which is black next to a hillside that is green. Well, to give a bit of context to you looking at the wildfire damage, I suppose we should begin with the fact that your subject is trees, really. How would you describe what you do to somebody you're meeting for the first time? So at the moment, I say to people that I'm I'm writing a book about how trees use biochemistry to shape the world around them. And that's become my, my sort of phrase for what this book is. I'm writing a book which is about trees but from the microscopic level to the kind of macro level all the way around the world. And so it's trying to express how we both give trees too little agency and too much agency. So how we both expect them to be able to grow anywhere without helping them and expect them to be able to, you know, trap carbon in 10 years, whereas actually what they need is a very long timescale often but then they can really work marbles and, you know, hue stone or redirect water. And so one reason I'm in Crete, actually, is because there's a very interesting woodland here, which is in what should be a double rain shadow. And no one really knows why, why it gets the amount of rain it does and how you have a woodland on what you would expect to be the better side of a mountain. Can you just explain what a double rain shadow is for the meteorologically less able? Yeah, I hope I get this right. So normally, water will evaporate up from sea, form a cloud, and a cloud full of rain will move over somewhere like a mountain. And then the the air from the mountain will force it to move up. The water in the cloud will condense and rain will fall on the side of the mountain, which is nearest the moisture-laden cloud, which is nearest the sea or the body of water that has allowed that cloud to form originally. And then the other side of the mountain will be incredibly dry. So it's really, really noticeable in places like the Black Sea coast of Turkey, where you are coming up through kind of cloud meadows, and then you get to the top of the mountain, and you can literally see the clouds sort of whizzing past your head and evaporating into thin air, and you look down over desert. So in this case, 
all the rain should be falling on the other side of a mountain, which is quite wet-ish by Cretan standards. But instead, you've got this incredible ability in a way to sort of keep this wetness permanent where you wouldn't expect it. Wow. Does that make sense? It does, although I'm, I'm curious to know how they're doing it. Well, so so are we all. I mean, this is the very interesting thing. I was reading a book about it, and and really, it's it's still a mystery. Amazing. And is it is it even the trees that are doing it? Is it something to do with the way the mountains are formed? Mm. I obviously think it's the trees, but it's still still under debate. Your love of trees is quite evident. Speaking to you, and I just wondered where that love affair began. It's so hard to know where a love affair begins. I grew up around trees. My mother edited something called the International Dendrological Society Journal. And my grandparents had a tree nursery. So I think it was very much, you know, I think when you grow up with things, obviously they're there and you sort of look at them more closely and everyone's always telling you how marvellous they are. But I don't think I really fell in love with trees until I went to work in Iraq and spent a long time in the desert and there were very few trees. There were, you know, some date palms, some tamarisk and some alhagi. But generally there weren't trees as I had known them. And I think it was then that I realised how much I really love all their variety and their sense of stability, their beauty and the feeling of what they do for us, I suppose, as well. But you love trees too. I do. But almost like anything that you learn more about in ecosystems... You, I suppose, begin with a sort of aesthetic fascination or possibly even like a sensual fascination with them. You know, I'm just forever amazed by the fact that you just, as soon as you walk through a wooded area, you just feel the coolness, you can feel the air change. And then you start to read about them and learn about them. And yeah, I mean, there's so much to be fascinated by. But you've just taken that so far. And I think that's, that's so exciting. You've been at this for years and feels like you're a long way from getting bored. A very interesting moment for me was that I used to, you know, spend a lot of time climbing trees or lighting fires using wood. But then I went to work in a lab and I didn't really like working in a lab. I found it quite boring and quite sort of, I was constantly on edge, you know, I always thought I'd do something wrong. But what was so fascinating was I was working on oak metabolites, I was working on tannins. And so seeing the immense range of chemicals that one oak tree could produce was for me a a sort of amazing, you know, suddenly, as you say, this sensual thing, this sort of wonderful craggy barked thing that you could lie in and look at the leaves and it was beautiful, suddenly turned into something that was a sort of chemical machine, I suppose. And so I don't think I ever lost the, the sensual side of it, but it just seemed amazing that all these chemicals could make that bark that leaf, that shade and coolness, as you say. Mm. Could you just talk me through your career journey, for want of a better word, because you mentioned working in a lab. So you, after school, studied biochem. Yes. And I wasn't the world's best biochemist, but I did enjoy it. And so that was four years. And I think I wanted to go into, as I say, my parents had been linked to trees and plants. So I didn't want to be like them. I wanted to go into medical research and work on virology or multiple sclerosis or something. And then I wasn't a good biochemist. So after after studying biochemistry, I thought, well, you know, I need to see more of the world. I'm, I'm very ignorant. I'm quite naive, um, which again is something that happens if you grow up surrounded by trees. You know, you are, you are cloistered by these temples of, you know, you have so much to fascinate you right there that you don't tend to look too much outside the world. Oh, that can happen. 
And so I moved to Istanbul and learned Turkish. And from there, I became really fascinated by Turkish trees, which are very different in many ways, very similar in others. But immensely, I mean, the diversity in Turkey is huge compared with England. And then I went to do history of science at Cambridge for a master's, a kind of research master's. And from there, it was it was very strange because I was casting around, as lots of us do, slightly desperately maybe in, in my mid-twenties. And I got an email from the Halo Trust, which is a landmine clearance charity, asking whether I would like to go and clear landmines. I had applied to them but ages ago, almost a year ago, and it seemed like something you could do which was very outside. You know, you were outside the whole time. It was about land change use, which I was very interested in. And it seemed something that was sort of undeniably good. You know, I thought there is something, if, if ever you look back on your life, what is it that you can say has been good? And I thought landmine clearance was that thing. And of course, the very interesting thing about any career is that when you really get into it, you realise how ambiguous it can be. Almost anything can be. You know, charity work is the famous one where people go into it with the best intentions and then realise that it can be very hard to do good in that context. And so I then moved to a frontline clearance programme in Iraq. And it was really, really fascinating But one of the worst things about it was that we were clearing ISIS IDs, ISIS bombs, and we were clearing them from power stations or hospitals. And instead of any form of what I would have thought of as renewable regrowth or renewable rebuilding, the sort of most destructive rebuilding was done. So, you know, if a house had been cleared, then it would be rebuilt in concrete. If a power station was rebuilt, then it would be rebuilt to be the same old power station, you know, the oil-fired power station. And of course, in Iraq, oil is everywhere. You see the negative effects of, of oil everywhere, not just in political structures, but also just in the field. You can smell oil, you can see flares from flaring. When you fly over Iraq, you see these thousand fires underneath you. And Also, you see it in the ground. You see poisoned ground, which is the effect of the fossil fuel industry on Iraq. And so that was so interesting because I think that was the moment that I thought, yes, it's one thing to clear the remnants of war, and that is a brilliant thing. But for me, I have I have more knowledge than some people of trees because I grew up around them and grew up planting them and nurturing them, I suppose. And it's also such a long-term thing. It's a thing where you have to give your life to it and you have to start sort of as soon as possible if you ever want to see a tree survive. And, and I thought that the form of landmine clearance that we were doing, although brilliant in itself, had none of the sort of environmental rebuilding, none of the downstream effects that it needed. Uh, because, of course, one reason that the conflicts have been so bad in Syria and Iraq particularly, but also in so many other countries, is that people are suffering from lack of rain or too much rain in some cases. But general environmental degradation has been incredibly bad in in many countries where there have been wars. So at that point, I decided to retire from landmine clearance and, I suppose, climate pivot and go and work with trees full time. That's such an interesting context to be in and to work in. And I suppose the response of some people might be, what does it matter if we're rebuilding in a way that doesn't feel sustainable when the immediate needs are so urgent? Why do you think it's so important that 
in these conflict zones, we are approaching problems with solutions that are looking further ahead. It's a really good point. And I've said that to myself many times. What does it matter if you're rebuilding in concrete, someone has a place to live? But the trouble is that the urgency is coming from both sides. So yes, there is an urgency for someone to have somewhere to live. But the urgency of oil destroying people's lives, for example, or that conflict not happening again in the next five years, the next 10 years, is equally urgent, really. And it's not that much cheaper to install an oil power generator. If you are shipping, most of the time you're shipping such generators in from America or Turkey or another country where solar panels exist, where there are clean green energies or energy producing mechanisms, and they're not that much more expensive. But there's a, there's a sort of fallacy that the quick and effective mechanism is to whack in the dirtiest, the most polluting mechanism straight away. And of course, it's not as though people in Iraq have cheap oil. That is, that's the sad, the sad reality. People living in Iraq still have very expensive diesel and petrol and, and so on. And so it's actually, because I, I did actually look this through, how much more expensive would it be rather than installing a diesel generator to install some form of renewable energy that would work? Solar, for example, in Iraq is, is brilliant, works extremely well. And the answer was nearly always that the price difference would be marginal. It wouldn't be so much harder to have something that was both there and effective quickly and was clean and green and and wasn't giving people cancer. All you had to do was establish that supply chain. And the trouble is that the people thinking about those supply chains are still not thinking in an environmentally sustainable way. And I suppose in, in Iraq it all seems more immediate because we have offshored so much of our sort of filthy technology in the UK, for example, that the very rarely smell that sort of stench from an oil burner, whereas you would, in the situations I'm talking about, you would be in a situation where you can smell the oil and it's going off to be purified, yes, but it will come back in a form that is still sulphur-heavy that people will inhale. I think something you said there about reframing this as an urgent problem I guess moving away from sort of abstractions of climate and biodiversity and and these words that sort of don't mean anything until you actually apply them to actually resilience against extreme weather events or food security Mm. or these things that actually do have a very tangible impact on people's lives. It seems to be a communication challenge for climate solutions more broadly. Yes, it's a very interesting point because trees are one of the few climate technologies, one of the few climate areas where people can get on board with it really easily. They can see it very easily. It's very tangible. The effects are very quickly felt. You have the shade almost immediately if the tree survives. And so that is one reason that I think trees are a very good kind of impeccable tool, really, in the fight against climate change. Because wood is still used in lots of countries as as a very good, I suppose, renewable, depending on how you want to look at it, source. What is interesting is that in, in countries like Angola, which, again, has had big problems with landmines and with conflict, and the poverty that comes post-conflict and the, and the lack of governmental help post-conflict, the clean wood-powered stove has been a real advantage to many people and has, I think, been a big success in helping people move away from fossil fuel consumption.
there's something else you said about how it's very easy where where we are uh, use we in in the sense of sort of the post-industrialized west you know having offshored so much of our energy production and energy extraction to forget what it looks like what it smells like what it feels like Exactly. And I suppose even coal, you know, the stories from Victorian London of, of coal dust or coal smoke seem like something miles in the past. But I lived in a city which always had a coal miasma over it. And yeah, it's, it's very striking when you, when you are hit with it, when you smell that smell and you think, why do, why do I always choke? Why do I have this tang in the back of my mouth? And, and you know it's not, it's not because the people in the city are using all this oil which is being pumped out of the ground next door to them. I can think of one very beautiful shrine where there's an oil well just on the road. So you're in this very beautiful shrine surrounded by, by trees, but always in the air is this tang and just down the road is this big flare that's flaring off the gas from the oil well. And every so often there's a fire through the trees because sparks from the gas flare will set things alight. It's easy to forget, I think, how the environmental struggles of the past are still ongoing in other parts of the world. And another example of this is food production. Because we produce so little food in the UK that we consume, it's very easy to forget about the spray and the plastic consumption and the general transport problems that are being caused across the world in, for example, southern Turkey or I saw some interesting examples of this in Belize recently with cattle ranching on areas of forest which have been cleared recently. It's very easy to look at look at our fields, which I suppose have sort of re-equalised somewhat and think that food production isn't necessarily the problem. Whereas when you see it in other forms, which probably makes up the majority of the food we eat, it can be very striking how, how brutal it is and how how much carbon goes into that and how much waste comes out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd actually like to chat in a little bit about agriculture and land management in general, because I know you have Mm. thoughts on that. Before we go into that, prior to working on the ground in landmine clearance, what was your relationship with environmental issues and the climate crisis? I mean, obviously, you grew up around trees and plants more broadly. But to what degree was this something that occupied your mind? I have a very awkward relationship with activism and with activists because so often I agree with what they're saying. I think their fundamentals are completely right. But then I dislike the simplicity with which they feel they have to put it across. And I think I agree with that simplicity. I agree that people need to know the sort of clear, unvarnished truth. But from a scientific view, it often worries me that the tenuous conclusions are given with such kind of absolute strength. So tree planting is a really good example of this. I find it really worrying when people say we need to plant, we need to increase tree cover by 20%. Because to me, that doesn't mean a nice, sustainable increase of 20%. To me, it means more like a forestry commission after the war in in the UK. They decided that the solution to the uplands was to plant trees all over it. And as we know, that is the way that England lost most of its ancient woodland. So when I hear the conclusions that activists state and get across into media and their bottom lines, as it were, always worry me, even though most of the time I'm on their side. So I think before landmine clearance, I had a very 
I suppose judgmental would be the best way to put it. I had a very judgmental relationship towards climate activism because I thought, for example, yes, most of us shouldn't be eating so much meat. But the idea that we should all stop eating meat really worried me because, of course, you know, there is always the farmer who is working incredibly hard to maintain a really diverse ecosystem, including a productive type of farming, which will allow various people to extract something from that ecosystem, but still essentially keep the land very healthy. And I think what I find very worrying about activism is the way it feeds into politics and then feeds out again from politics, in that no one's really willing to give the very, very hard points away. And and perhaps that's not true. Perhaps just stop oil, for example. I totally agree with them. We need to stop oil, full stop. And I also agree with their methods. I think their methods are 100% what is necessary. But would I become a just stop oil activist? No, because I could never bring myself to put a fact so boldly. And I think that's in a way because of growing up in a botanical background, growing up studying science, you reframe things differently. You believe too much in the observed sort of stochastic movement of that particular area. So it's very hard to have any sort of national or, in fact, international view about anything which you can state dogmatically because you know that the first thing that dogma does is to commit some sort of terrible scientific crime. Because you, there are so many variations to the natural world. There's a lot in there that I relate to. And obviously, I, I don't share your scientific background, but I do come from a context where you always question dogma and ideology and mm. almost strive for not quite a fence-sitting position, but certainly a, a position that reflects as much nuance as possible. Yeah. And so I, I'm likewise really wary of, of anything that strikes me as failing to, to grasp that. I guess where I land on it is that I, I think we need both types of people. Because if, if we all took this position of, you know, I don't, I don't have all the facts, I can't possibly have all the facts we would never get anything done. But if we only had that sort of activist who's incredibly confident in their in their mission, mm. we would also risk diving headfirst into all types of extremism, which we definitely don't want. And we know that there are, you know, potentially unintended consequences to all sorts of these areas. And so I, th I think it's really important that we have both sorts of modes of operating. Certainly. Yes. And I I wish in one sense that I'd started to be a climate activist when I was younger, when I was more absolute on, on various points, because then you can you can always back off, as it were. You can always say, yes, I think it's wonderful that people are pushing for this hardline position. I agree with so much of it, but, 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 but. Yeah. So I, I feel I would argue, actually, from the point of view of trees, where I feel like I do have more of a fact in my I don't know, more of a fact to play with or more of the experience to play with, I suppose. I would feel very happy sort of being a little bit dogmatic, laying down the law in certain areas. But then I would be really happy if someone then said, no, you're being dogmatic and foolish on this point, this point, this point. And I suppose that's it. Exactly. As you say, we have to have a sort of dynamic equilibrium, a sort of changing norm, a changing hard line that we can always challenge, but which generally leads us towards a very dramatic change. And dramatic changes are scary. I think 
particularly from a social point of view, the number of people who are who are scared by by dramatic change is is very high always in a population, and that's why you need the activists to sort of make people really think about about what they're doing. I couldn't agree more, and I I love the phrase dynamic equilibrium. I'm going to mull that over and take that with me if I may. I just want to hop slightly back into the chronology. So you left Iraq and came back to the UK. Yes. And that's when your sort of relationship with trees was maybe formalised? Exactly. And actually linked back to what you were saying about, about dogmatism and activism. One reason that I decided to take a job in the UK working for a tree charity, because at this stage I was still very keen on, on working in Iraq, I wanted to set up a mechanism by which Iraqi environmental charities could get international funding because one of the problems has been that smaller charities on the ground, particularly those in which the leaders of the charity don't necessarily speak English, are shut off from a huge amount of the climate funding that's out there. And it's still a massive problem. But I thought it is one of those things where it's very ignorance makes you very clear sighted. It's much easier having spent two years in a country to think, okay, I know exactly what's needed, you know, we need funding here or funding there. That it is when you're working within a political structure that you have seen working for a long time, that you've kind of examined, that you've voted in, I suppose. So I came back to England and I started working for a UK charity called the Tree Council, which is quite a small charity. It it used to be where um, the Forestry Commission was meant to be dealing with forestry trees, trees grown for a certain reason the tree council was meant to deal with the non-forestry trees. So it was meant to deal with hedgerows and street trees and trees in woodlands. But it was also set up in response to a tree disaster. It was set up in response to the spread of Dutch elm disease in the UK. And so that was very interesting because I was working a lot with DEFRA. I was working a lot within a system. And it's so fascinating coming into an environment where you've been a sort of passionate amateur on the outside. You've never worked in any sort of organisation that's dealing with it. And everything looks so wonderful from the outside. You know, it's sort of glossy and fantastic and vibrant. And then, of course, you get in to the sort of climate sphere, in my case, into the, into the tree world. And it becomes immensely complicated. And suddenly, again, that sort of moral certainty that you had is is complicated. I'm not saying it, it goes away altogether, but it suddenly becomes a lot more complex. And the classic example of this is when it comes to tree planting in the UK. You mentioned Dutch elm disease, and that's something that a lot of people will be aware of, but may not be hugely knowledgeable about unless they're you know working in trees or in the landscape. Could you just talk a little bit about the impact that had on the British landscape and what lessons you think it has for us? Yes, of course. So Dutch elm disease was one of the first really massive tree diseases to destroy a treescape in Britain. And what happened was that Britain used to have lots of beautiful old large elm trees all over in, in every sort of environment. They loved rivers, they loved being in open fields, and hedges were full of them. So hedgerow trees were basically nearly all elm trees. And then what happened was that Dutch elm disease, which is a beetle spread disease, arrived and it landed on the big trees, as in the beetles would move around between these big trees, spreading this fungus, and the elms couldn't cope. They all, nearly all died. So now there are isolated big elms in Brighton, in Scotland, I think, one or two in Eastbourne, I believe. But otherwise, all the big elm trees in the UK were wiped out. And I think, obviously, I never saw these trees, but I think for 
of the generation that had grown up with them and, and knew them very well, it was a massive wake-up call. They suddenly realised what globalisation was doing to such a key part of the landscape. But then, of course, for people who were born after this, for people who were born in the 90s, you know, there was no change. It was it was a rare thing to see an elm. You know, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't a big tragedy. It wasn't necessarily something we'd learned about. And then, of course, recently we've had ash dieback disease, which again has started killing a large number of very notable trees in the landscape. And I think the same awareness and, and the same sort of tragic waking has happened to our generation, perhaps. You, you drive down a lane and hedges on either side will be full of dead trees if they haven't been cut down. And woods will sort of suddenly die in a swathe. That's the, the difference with ashes, of course, that you have dead woodlands. And I think for us, that has been, that has been a real shock, a real example of sort of what is it we're doing? What is it we're doing to the environment? And what is it we're doing to our treescape? But the very interesting point about this is that there is also tree blindness. So people tend to notice animals much more than they notice plants, and they tend to not really notice trees in the same way that they would notice something that was moving, I suppose. And so my job with DEFRA was partly dealing with tree diseases, particularly with ash dieback. And it was, yeah, it was a real tragedy because, again, I'd grown up with lots of ash around me and the ash trees that I knew and had looked at every day going to and from school, for example, suddenly big, big, big trees were dying completely. And I think that was interesting for two reasons. One was that it was very interesting to look at the way that people treat trees. Most of the time they treat them as a liability and they're more worried about how they're going to pay to get rid of them than worried about how they're going to possibly keep them or protect the next tree. And, and two, they feel really helpless in the face of a tree dying. They feel there's nothing they can do because they don't really understand how a tree immune system works. They don't really understand how tree genetics work. They just see trees as something that, you know, live or die independent of them often. And it, it is always fascinating to see people respond to the natural world in that way. Partly, I think people often feel as very helpless because it's something that's on, on a big scale or something that they feel is too big for them to cope with, perhaps. You've got me thinking about our kind of cultural amnesia with regards to these changes that are, you know, on geological timescales and ecosystem timescales happening very quickly, but are still sort of generational and just so fascinating that we have to kind of keep learning this lesson again and again that the landscape changes and it is vulnerable and is a dynamic thing and there will be losses that are before our time and even if they are not before our time we very quickly acclimatize to them. Yes and and that's something I'm really trying so hard to get across in my book this sort of odd middle time scale where we can forget a massive landscape change which we could, you know, remember and other cultures definitely would pass down that landscape change in oral poetry or in some form of myth. And and writers, you know, will try and pass down that change. Poets will try and write about it like Gerald Manning Hopkins or Chekhov will try and will try and explain it. But it's very hard for some reason, exactly, there is this uh, aesthetic smoothing over of the rough edges of losing a really key part of the landscape which happens very soon. 
And I think it's also something people forget about the other way as well. So when they're planting trees, people very easily forget the tusky field and assume that the 10-year-old forest has always been there. And that is also an interesting an interesting thing to observe, the way that people, for example, will protest madly over a 10-year-old tree being removed, which perhaps someone planted 10 years ago on a whim. You know, they just tuck a sapling in the ground. In the case of a willow, they might literally have stuck a stick in the ground and suddenly it becomes something to, to fight for, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I do find it very interesting that people see trees as so unmovable, so immobile, so lacking in agency. And there's something implicit to what you were saying about our sense of powerlessness over the other than human. And obviously that's ludicrous because we've done so much to to harm the world, some more than others, over recent history. And you seem to be advocating for quite an active relationship with trees and with ecosystems, as opposed to what many people maybe think of as, a, as an ideal relationship, which is something more passive, something where we, we just let, quote-unquote, nature do its thing. Yes, I am a very firm advocate for interaction between trees and people, particularly, and nature and people generally. I think it's gone beyond the point, I think unless we want to mass die for humans, it's gone beyond the point where we can in any way sequester ourselves from the natural world and... Like so many people, I don't think that's ultimately going to help anyone if we try and shut off large areas of wilderness, partly because humans have had such an effect on the landscape already in so many ways. If humans have been involved in a landscape for a very long time and you remove that influence, I think the changes can be negative as well as positive. And partly because I think the understanding, I mean, it's very hard to generalise, obviously, but I think the understanding that you see in people who actively use wood, I'm going to talk specifically about trees because it's easier. I think the understanding of that timescale does seem to be deeper. You know, people who coppice woodlands, for example, they have a more obvious knowledge of when you can take wood away and when you can leave it. I mean, it's very hard, obviously, to generalise, but the charity I'm a trustee of, Hassar Organisation in Iraq, is set up by young people who are currently living in Erbil, in the city in Iraqi Kurdistan. But what is very interesting is that most of them have a very good understanding of how trees grow because they used to go and visit their grandparents who live in villages and where where wood is still the major fuel and trees are really still used for building and for almost everything. And it's just very noticeable, or it was very noticeable to me, compared with the general level of sort of fundamental understanding of how, for example, carbon sequestration works, where you could cut a tree back to, for example, before it regrew. As soon as you're removed from that very fundamental relationship, it becomes much harder to visualise it. But I think what is lost, which is really fundamental, is is a form of sympathy that comes from a sort of understanding of essentially how slowly trees will regrow, that if you cut it down and it doesn't regrow, then it's gone. A good example of this is the biodiversity offset scheme in the UK. If you build a house and cut down an old tree, you're allowed to plant, I think, 10 saplings to make up for that. But I, I mean, that is clearly absurd. There's, there's no way that that is, is an effective offsetting mechanism because what you're planting, you know, you're planting 10 potential trees, but there's absolutely no guarantee that any of them will be effective or any of them will grow 
even half as old as the tree you've cut down. And of course, you're not factoring in, because how can you? You're not factoring in the seed source. You're not factoring in the differences in the trees that you're planting. And so if, for example, they came from a central seed source, then that is likely to be a disaster because trees will have adapted to that area over a very long period of time. And if you are cutting down, for example, a 200-year-old oak, then you've really got to try and compensate for, for so much there. You're losing so much that it's an absurdity. You know, it's actually a, a sort of, it's slightly revolting, it's slightly disgusting. And I think that is something that people would understand if they had grown up linked to that tree, which perhaps they wouldn't understand if they had grown up in a, an environment where you look at a tree, but you don't touch it or you don't interact with it. That's interesting, and I can I can certainly see how that's the case. Extrapolating wildly from that, is that the thin end of a wedge whereby people living in rural contexts, in somewhere like the UK, should have more of an input into environmental policy? Well, certainly from the tree point of view, no, absolutely not, because most or lots of cities in the UK are urban forests, they actually have higher tree cover than lots of rural areas. So that would be an absurdity because you can interact with a tree without cutting it or cutting it down. I would think more children, for example, who grow up in urban areas have planted trees or nurtured trees in some way. In a rural area, you're more likely to see them as, again, something that just grows. It's more to do with, I suppose, the intention towards towards a tree as in is it something that you really look at or is it something that that is someone else's responsibility there's so many things i want to ask you i can't risk us finishing this conversation without asking you to give me two minutes on what trees provide for us but for ecosystems and for the planet you've alluded to some of them particularly when it comes to sort of carbon sequestration and also the cultural significance. But it would just be great to hear because I know that is much of what you're currently writing about. But I expect there are lots of things that would surprise people. This is a terrible question. Two minutes? You can have longer. (laughs) Fundamentally, I think what trees give us is stability. That is something which I can't stress enough. The more I look at trees, the more I research trees, the more I read obscure papers in nature, the more striking it is that wherever a tree is, you are so much more likely to have stability, apart from, of course, in the very rare case where they will stabilise the foundations of somewhere's house. that, That is rare. The stability that they give in terms of air and water and the the sort of home that they provide, the way that they give us our world, it sounds too sweeping and it sounds too profound and it sounds too all-encompassing. But I think when we think of, for example, the, the smaller things, when we think of a street tree absorbing particulate matter from a car exhaust which will very effectively, much more effectively than anything else that's currently been invented or is around. To, to see a tree as a clean air machine, I think is totally missing the point. But people say it. And again, to, to see a tree as something that controls water flow into the aquifer so that you don't get so much surface runoff and you're less likely to have a flooded street. Again, it misses the point, but it's 100% true. Or the way that trees will put carbon into the soil, thereby sort of knit it together in and outside woodland. 
the way that trees will provide a habitat for the most extraordinary number of insects and birds and animals, all of which interact. So I was just reading about the aspen in in Scotland, and, you know, there is a hoverfly that lives only on the aspen. And that sort of niche production was as important for us when we were developing as it is now for the hoverfly. They provide that, but they also... Rebecca Solnit wrote a really wonderful phrase, I'm probably going to misquote her now, I'm sorry, which is that trees provide an opportunity to stand still and reach out and down as they do. And it's such a good and profound way of putting it. So trees give us stability, but I think they also truly give us hope for a planet that in the grip of climate change can come out of the other side. You know, I think trees will remain or will adapt out of it. And that gives me a lot of hope. I think you're absolutely right, because as trite as it sounds, so much of our imagery, and I mean literal imagery, Mm. for the future and for connecting to the natural world and so on, is based around trees. They just are part of what seems to be a universal language. Mm. And I think there's more to that than just their, their place in the environment. There's also a sense of their relationship with time and kind of how they relate it to time, as you've alluded to. In, in so many cultures, they have this association with heritage and inheritance. Yes, exactly. We've spoken a lot about trees and I've enjoyed it immensely, but I'd love to just, in our closing minutes, bring this back to what you've been doing. Yes. You're now writing and I know we, we can't talk lots about that because you're, you're in the process of writing, but what has been your experience of that shift in activity, I suppose, going from something that is presumably... A life in which work was a fairly social activity to writing, which stereotypically we think of as somewhat of a solo activity. Mm, That's a really good point. One of the very nice things about writing a book is that whenever you're interested in something, if you're feeling brave enough, you can write to people. And people are so kind and will generally reply. So I'm in touch at the moment with someone who has written a really good book about squares in America, Lindsay Borgen, and about how conservation can include everyone and doesn't have to be in any way elitist or the ways in which conservation can buy people out and the way that you can keep people in. And it's been incredible to link in with a lot of people around the world. So what has been really nice is that because my book is meant to be dealing with trees globally and because you get, you know, very similar trees in Utah and the Taklamakan Desert that I've been in touch with, I think, more people than ever before by email. And most of them are people who are really passionate and interested about their subject. I suppose my way of writing so far has made it easier. So I tend to procrastinate terribly, seal my friends, and send various stupid messages to people about stupid things, and then go under and and write solidly for a couple of weeks. And I think that's been a good way of doing it. Because I have to travel a lot for this book for research, Um, it's been really wonderful to be able to talk to people and spend time with people without worrying that you haven't answered that email which you should have answered because that's your employment and that's where your money comes from. So I was hosted by the forestry service in Pakistan, for example, and they were incredibly kind, but it was really fantastic being able to spend hours with them talking and going to look at their trees without constantly worrying about what was on your phone and, you know, should you check for another email and and so on. 
And so, yeah, the freedom to completely order my time has been has been really wonderful. But of course, I miss that collegiate feel, the sort of gossip. And also, actually, I miss being linked into what what the government was doing, because being funded by DEFRA meant that I could be at what you might call the, the meetings about farm payments or tree health, for example. And that was a really wonderful way to connect with people. And so I suppose my connections have become more international, but my day-to-day environment has become much more relaxed or at any rate, much more self-driven. I'm not going to ask you how many trees you're planting to to offset your travel, but I <laughs> I do completely empathise with travelling with that sense of purpose. I mean, I last year travelled to Iceland with the carbon removal show with the view of understanding how this country functions from an energy perspective, how its landscape is changing, why it is becoming a hub for certain technologies. And in three days, I felt like I got so much more than I would have in a month of sort of being a tourist in the country. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you're, you're experiencing somewhere through only one lens. But just understanding how a place works, how a locality works through a particular subject, to me is just incredibly rewarding experience. And I imagine you're you're doing that a lot. Yeah, it's complete magic. And you're right about the flying point. I mean, that is, I think, the big one for so many people when it comes to personal changes to do with climate change. And, and I'm no exception. But to talk about your other point to do with connection, it is absolutely amazing, partly because I think so many people love trees. You know, I, I was hitchhiking near the Guatemalan border and someone picked me up and we started talking and he knew all the trees around him and he'd never studied them, but he knew absolutely, I think, more than anyone I've ever met on the areas of trees he was relating to. And so the very nice thing about trees is you have an instant warmth and an instant connection with so many people. But then also there are highly developed tree science links in so many, so many places that exactly you suddenly instantly get into a, a set of people who are really enthusiastic about what they do, who have, I think one of the lovely things is people have that sort of sympathy and I suppose creative love of what they're doing as well as, you know, it's almost like being the creative arts, I suppose. But then often there's a very scientific sort of underpinning to all of that. And yeah, and it's it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful world, tree-wise, partly because it's so international. Uh, So you have lots of people who are really looking at something that's very close to them. And lots of them never travel away from the point that they are at, but they'll be in correspondence with people all around the world. And people are so generous with their contacts, you know, they'll, they'll link you up to somebody here and somebody there. And then anyone you meet on the road will probably have something interesting to say about the local tree. Because there's so much specificity, so much variety. You know, they impinge on so many people's lives all around the world. Sounds like a lot of fun. It means probably your your London-based friends are going to struggle to see you at all over the next few months. For you, Ben. There is always time. Thank you. My final career-based question, really, is I'd love to know what your mission is. Mm, um, my mission is to make people plant trees in a better way, I think. You know, if you need one thing that you really have to say, I think one of the saddest things is a tree planting program gone wrong. So when you look at a field of trees in which lots of them have died, it's just so unnecessary. It's so sad. And it's so wasteful that 
yeah, I think that would be my mission, to make people understand trees better. And the result of that, I hope the practical result, would be to make them plant trees better. Or, or to allow trees to grow better, or to protect trees better, or to, you know, in any way improve the lives of the trees that they live with. Plant more trees in cities, or, or, or watch a tree sucker and not immediately panic and sort of run for the axe. You know, because that is that is one of the very interesting things about people and trees. So often they'll admire this sort of really beautiful straight oak that is growing and then sort of be slightly disgusted by the aspen that's suckering away further further down because they feel they can't control them. And part of that, actually asking people to plant trees better, is making people realise to what extent trees aren't a machine. The way that carbon credits are working, alas, encourages people to see trees as a machine. And the way that they're being used to sequester carbon often encourages people to try and treat trees like a machine, to try and make them grow like machines. And that, to my mind, is totally wrong, partly because you're missing so many of the biodiversity benefits of a tree, but also because suckering, for example is one of the best ways to grow trees. So if you think about Pando, the aspen in Utah that is the largest organism on the planet, you have this enormous biomass, this enormous area of trapped carbon. And of course, it would never, you know, most people would not think of letting something sucker in order to plant plant trees. You know, they'd rather buy in lots of saplings and, and plant them all over a field. So it's a bit of a boring point I suppose it's a bit of a boring mission but what I would like is that everyone who plants a tree thinks about it properly and the tree survives. I don't think that's a boring mission at all I think it's very on character for someone who's described themselves as wanting to get deep into the complexity of things and it, it feels like this is an area that will continue to offer that for a long time. I hope so it's not a simple mission. No an important one though. I think so yeah. So if anyone listening is interested in learning more about trees, obviously, as soon as they can, they'll pre-order your book. But is there anything you would recommend that really engages in that, in that passion for trees? It depends where you are, but I do think it's a little bit like cooking. So I think if you're in a city, the best thing to do is to go and talk to a tree officer. And then, you know, there are so many good charities that plant trees and know a lot about them, like Trees for Cities. And I think if you're in the city, sorry, if you're in the country, then there are a million good books, but also a million very knowledgeable people planting trees everywhere or looking at trees everywhere. So the field studies groups are brilliant. There are, the BSBI, of course, is mainly to do with flowers, but it also has unrivaled knowledge really of trees and there are lots of organizations linked to ancient woodland lots of nature reserves people who are sort of dealing with trees on a day-to-day -day basis and I do think that's important because so much of what trees are is individual and if for example if if everyone could form a relationship with one tree then that would go a very long way towards offsetting carbon emissions which sounds it sounds absurd no it, it sounds ridiculous but if everyone really observed one tree and really looked after it, then I, th I think that knowledge would sort of expand it disproportionately. And there are some brilliant books, Alan Mitchell's Trees of Britain. I love Peter Wallenberg. I know he's controversial. And, and he is, you know, some of what he says seems to me absurd. But um, I think 
most of his ways of looking at trees are brilliant. But but really, the interesting thing is that any reading about trees is valuable. I don't think there's anything which you can read which is not valuable. It's it's a strange sort of game in which there is no negative, no bad way of doing it. The only bad thing really is ignorance, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Whenever you start talking about trees, you do realise that they are something that a lot of people care quite deeply about, and maybe it's just something that they haven't explored. I love your idea of us each being responsible for looking out for one tree. I don't see it emerging on any political manifestos in the near future, but yeah, maybe it's something we can organise. Maybe I'll have to nobble Keir Starmer or Ed Davey. Do your best. <laughs> That's fair. <hope. laughs> so where can people where can people find out more about you or follow you? I'm on Twitter. I'm thinking of leaving soon, but I'm on Twitter. And otherwise, my publisher and my agent, I'm being published by Bodley Head, which is a penguin imprint. And my agent is Doug Young at Pew Literary Agency. And so they post updates quite regularly. But Twitter is my major channel at the moment. I'm thinking of moving to TikTok. TikTok trees. Would you would you watch TikToks about trees, Ben? Not only would I, but I do. Hmm. So yes, I absolutely think you should be on there. There's actually a lot of really great botany stuff on TikTok. Yes, there is. Yeah. Worth diving into. But it's been so nice to chat. And, you know, if, if everyone I've spoken to so far, I've certainly known you the longest. I think it's 22 years now. Wow, is it? We're as old as the trees. We are. Yeah, I remember you at school being the one vegetarian. Hopefully you wouldn't be that now. Hopefully not. No, I think it is it is becoming a lot more common, but I certainly remember that, the sort of awkwardly shuffling up to the catering staff and asking for my vegetarian option to be brought out from the depths of the kitchen. Yeah, and I think I imitated you and became vegetarian after a couple of years, but I'm not sure whether it was entirely for climate reasons, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for still being my friend after 22 years and joining me to chat today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to The Climate Pivot. If you've enjoyed the show and found it useful, I could ask you to leave it a five-star review, subscribe, or donate to the coffee link in this episode's show notes. But if I'm honest, there's one thing I'd really love for you to do. I'd be grateful if you could recommend this podcast to two friends who you think it might benefit, who might be at the beginning of their own climate pivots or wondering how and where to begin. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, take care of yourself others and the planet and good luck with your climate pivot.